How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depths and breadths and height that my soul can reach. When feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace, I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love that I seemed to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, and tears of my life. And if God should choose, I shall but love thee better even after death. Who has ever heard that poem before? We love you too, Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> who can tell, and who can say, who can tell me who it's by? William Shakespeare. Browning. Kathy? Browning. Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And Elizabeth Barrett Browning, when she was 15 years old, she was the victim of a very, very rare uh, neurogenitive disorder, kind of like MS is today, except for it's very, very painful. Um, she became hooked on laudanum, which is an opiate. And because she spent so much time in bed because of her frail health, she also caught tuberculosis and died of consumption. Mm. And that kind of death is a very long painful, dragged out, excruciating death, where you basically drown in your own fluids. Mm -hmm. Now that mixed with her being an invalid, she could not gather the strength to cough, to be able mm. to get a clear breath. So what if I told you that she wrote this poem to her husband, the famed poet, Robert Browning, she was disinherited by her family, even in her sickened state when she married him. So he packed her up and they went to Italy where they lived out the rest of her life, which was only another 16 years where he took care of her every day, fed her, cleaned her, bathed her day in and day out for 16 years. Wow. And she wrote this poem to him. How many of you know that? You when you understand whether you've heard this poem once or whether you've heard it a hundred times, once you know the background of who this person was and why she wrote it, it makes that poem all the more deeper and significant, does it not? Yes. How many of you have watched movies, old black and white newsreels of people around World War One or World War Two, and everybody seemed to have hats and three-piece suits on, on beaches and, you know, at amusement parks, just walking the street in three-piece suits and hats everywhere they went in their Sunday best. Raise your yeah, hand if you... You got to look sharp, see? That's really... You got to look sharp, see? Or I'll give you the what for. Um... <laughs> How many of you have wondered, why is that? 
Raise your hand if you have more than one change of clothes in your closet. More than one change of clothes. By hey, those standards, you, my friends, to a person living at that time, are rich. Not only are you middle-class rich, you're filthy, stinking rich. Because the reason that you saw them walking out around in that three-piece suit is because the average person had three changes of clothes. They had pajamas, they had work clothes, and they had their Sunday best or their Shabbat best. That's why you see them dressed to the nines because that's all they had. When you understand these things about cultural differences and differences between time and the point of view of people, you can learn a lot about how these people thought about their world and reacted to their world. A lot of stuff of what I'm going to be saying today, I've said from the Bema, or I have said ad nauseum in my Hebrew classes. So those of you that have ever sat in any one of my Hebrew classes for more than five minutes, much of this stuff will be familiar to you. Okay, so that's cool. However, I'm still very interested in your questions. After all, I've known you guys a long time. You know my shtick. My shtick is to pick you out of your own heads and into the heads and hearts of the first people that would have heard the words of this dirty Galilean who seems to be ushering in the kingdom of God and who touches you deeply and you can't really put your finger on why. That's always where I'm coming from. If an Egyptian at the time of Yeshua had heard the story of the prodigal son, we've all heard the story of the prodigal son. The younger son gets really, really selfish and he says, dad, I want my share of my inheritance now. He basically goes out, he sows his raw, his wild oats, so to speak, and he spends all of his money, spends, squanders it all, okay, until he has nothing left. He probably supported a lot of his friends at parties and when his cash ran out, all of his friends left him. And eventually he was left with absolutely nothing in squalor. He had to get a job in a pig pen, feeding pigs. Obviously, a Gentile of, of owned, the, owned a pig pen, okay? So not only did a Jew have to work for an unclean Gentile, he had to do the uncleanest job of the uncleanest Gentile jobs, feeding pigs. And eventually, the pig feed started to look good to him. Now, if you were an Egyptian at the time of Yeshua, or a case could be made, a case could be made that even if you were a middle-class to upper-class Roman, okay? Well, no, let me back up with that. If you were a Greek at the time of Yeshua, especially the Greek philosophers, the, the, the schools of Stoic philosophy, the Stoics, the Philosophs, the Neoplatonists, okay? you would probably think upon hearing the story, well, he deserved it. He squandered his father's inheritance. Of course, he's in that situation. He, he's got to take personal responsibility of his actions. And the thing is, that's how most Americans think about it. Okay. Now, if you were an Egyptian or an upper, to, an upper class Roman, you probably would have thought, why is this guy starving? And you'd say, well, it, it's obvious while he's, why he's starving. There was, there was a great famine in the land. 
And with that kind of frame of mind, personal responsibility, yes, but also there is the power of external circumstances working on this poor guy, okay? If you were a Galilean, a contemporary of Yeshua, and you were asked, why is this guy working in a pig pen? You would have said, why are you asking me such an obvious question? The obvious answer is that nobody would give him anything to eat. That's, that's why. Okay. And what I'm going to do now is I'm going to open the word. Hey, Wayne, can I ask you a question? It comes from Luke, 6, Luke 15, and I'm going to read you a few verses. Okay. Can I, ask, you, can I uh, ask a question, Wayne? Please. So, uh, I mean, those uh, points of view that you just shared, those three different mm -hmm. points of view, is that all of them knowing that uh, the prodigal son uh, scenario? That's all of them that, let's say, if they had heard it the first time. Okay. What would their immediate reaction be? Okay. Okay, and I'm going to read you a few lines here. After a few days, the younger son gathered his possessions and his father's inheritance and left for a country far away from home. There he squalored everything he had on a wild lifestyle. He had nothing left and nothing to live on when a severe famine spread throughout the land. So he got a job from someone in that country who was sent to feed pigs in the field. And he was very, very hungry, very hungry that even the pig feed started to look appetizing because no one would give him anything to eat. Finally, he came to his senses, yada, yada, yada. So we have a very interesting dichotomy the way these cultures would have heard that story. We as Americans, the Greek philosophers would have said, of course, he's starving. He squandered all his money. It's his own fault. Personal responsibility, the power of the individual as it is in America. Okay. Then you have the Egyptian and the Roman point of view. Yes, he squandered all his living, but there were external unfortunate circumstances acting upon them. There was a famine in the land. And then you have the Galilean point of view. No one would give him anything to eat. So there is an idea of a collective. There's an idea that we are our brother's keepers, an idea that we are responsible for one another. Okay. I've said from the Bema many, many times, there was no such thing as the American dream to that part of the country. There were, there's no such thing as the American dream in a lot of countries now. It didn't matter if you liked what you did. It didn't matter if you liked being a shepherd or if you liked, you know, working in a farm. You did it because you had to do it. Didn't matter if you liked it. What mattered is if did it pay you enough to feed your family. So there's this idea of the collective in Hebrew thought. Are there any questions about that? because we're very far removed from that now. In other words, you don't make a decision without considering not only your family, but your other extended family and your group that you're dependent on. You might have a neighbor who may or may not be your extended family, 
and you shared plots of land to grow food for your family. You shared little plots of land to keep your goats and sheep on. And often these were in the same pen. So it was not only what am I doing? What can I do for myself? But what can I do for this neighbor who is also helping my family out? There's this idea of the collective. Okay. If you can understand that, a lot more of Hebraic thought you can grasp. I've said, I've said to my Hebrew students until I'm they're, they're, they're sick of hearing it. Grammatically, vocabulary, I could teach you Hebrew on almost a rabbinical level. I could teach you the, in, the intricacies of why the dots and the vowels change when the verb tense changes. But if I haven't taught you to think Hebraically, I have failed you. If I teach you Hebrew to the point where you can get on a plane, fly to Israel and speak it fluently, but I haven't taught you to pit your mind into the Hebraic way of thinking, I have failed you, failed you, failed you. And it doesn't matter how much Hebrew I've taught you or not. In English, we still think, and our educational system is still think under basically the rules of logic. There is cause and there is effect. And there's a very clear delineation between the two. Okay? Think of the laws of thermodynamics, if you can think that back into science. An object will stay of motion until an external force acts upon it. So there's a very delineation between cause and effect. And the differences are both very well defined. That's very Greek thinking. Everything is categorical. Everything is this because it's not this. Everything has their narrow, narrow categories. Okay? Hebraically, that's not the way they thought. The same fire that could burn you could cook your food and keep you warm at night. The same rain, right, that could soak you to the bone, fed your animals, filled your sister, right? Watered your crops. The same sun that gave you a farmer's tan because you're out in the fields 10 hours a day plus, okay, was the same sun that helped your wheat to grow so that your wife and daughters could make all the bread you could eat, okay? The same forces that spoiled your food, if you, and this is not pleasant to talk about or think about, but it's a thing. They would put goat's milk into a stomach, the stomach of another animal. Of course, they would remove the stomach after the animal had died or been slaughtered or whatever and they would hang it from a rope from a tree and, and a lady would shake it. This was quote unquote woman's work and they would shake it. And eventually, you know how when you open a thing of cottage cheese and that kind of runny kind of yellow, that kind of whitish, you know, looks like curds, curds and whey, you know, you hold, hold something Muppet said on the topic eating curds and whey. Well, it's the same thing. Well, that was cheese to them. And that was about one of the only sources of protein. Okay, so that same 
idea of what could spoil food would also nourish you. Okay? It's not like fire, hot, fire, bad. They did not think categorically like we do. Okay? The Hebrews were not a scientific society like the Greeks, but they were no dolts either. That did not make them ignorant. The Hebrews were very, very keen observers of nature, and they knew how to harness nature for their good and the good of their family. Okay? Are there any questions up to this point? Feel free to unmute, unmute yourself and just blurt it out. I think... One thing I'm, I'm hearing you say that's interesting, we don't always think about it, is to think about our own perspective, mm -hmm. our own bias. Like we have to realize we're in American culture, which is very individualistic, very, you know, the American dream, all that. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and part of like, you know, like G.I. Joe says, knowing is half the battle, just mm -hmm. recognizing your own, that you have a perspective is very helpful and that the perspective of scripture is, is radically different. So, you know, exactly. I'm really it's, resonating. It's radically different. And the thing about my approach is that you have to take the scripture on its own terms. The scripture makes the rules and we follow. Okay. It's not the other way around. A lot of people like to impose their rules on the scripture. And that's kind of wrong because in that way, they make scripture like torture. If you torture the Bible long enough, you can make it say anything you want. I have a question, Wayne. Yeah. So uh, would you say that the uh, Hebrew mentality would be the uh, God's mentality or that uh, even uh, the Hebrew way of looking things do need to be um, reproofed by uh, what God truly meant in, in, the, in the scripture. Andrew, I, I think you ask a brilliant question. I think that God used the Hebrew point of view to reveal himself. And, and you ask a good point and hold that thought, Andrew, because it's going to be very valuable, your point of view, as we go on, you're going to see exactly what I mean. Okay. So we got Greek thinking very, very categorically. Okay, and our verb tenses in English, okay, they come from that Greek way of thinking, okay, in English, uh, and in a lot of the Western languages, okay, a lot of the languages other than Semitic languages, Semitic being um, the language family that Hebrew is derived from, that Arabic is derived from, Aramaic, Egyptian, um, back in the day was Semitic. Um, it's a completely different language family. They have nothing in common with English. Zero. It, it would be like, you know, Inuit, Indian, Eskimo, and Swahili. They have absolutely nothing in common. Um, us English, when we think of our language, when we think of how our verbs work, they categorize, they delineate portions of time, and those portions of time do not overlap. I am eating now. I will eat this evening. I ate yesterday. I drove last week. And whenever that last week was over, I stopped driving. Bang. Okay. It adds a border to time. Okay. I believe, I think I'm telling you correctly, in English, there are 14 different verb tenses. 
in Spanish and Italian and Portuguese, there's more. I believe there are like 16. There, there are tenses in Spanish that we don't use in English. Uh, there's something called, let me give you an example. There's something called the subjunctive tense, okay? And that's used if you are giving a command or if you're expressing doubt, okay? For instance, in English, we use it. We just don't realize we're using it. Andrew, I want you to ask that question again later, all right? Well, really, I'm giving you a, a subtle command. Andrew, I want you to ask, okay? If I was saying that in Spanish, that's a completely different verb form, okay? Yo quiero que Andrew que preguntes esta pregunta otra vez, okay? I want you to ask it again. Cece and I always use this example with Cece in Hebrew classes, okay? We have all these different tenses. You know how many tenses there are in Hebrew? You know how many verb tenses there are? Two, okay? Now there are a lot of ways to modify a verb's meaning, okay? For instance, in Hebrew, there's something that, um, there's a tense called, I think it's the, well, anyway, there's a tense that amplifies a verb. For instance, I eat my cereal. Now, if I put it in a certain verb form, okay, it is the same word for to eat, but it means I devour my cereal. Very subtle changes like that, but as the way you conjugate verbs, in other words, the way in Hebrew that you give verbs a meaning to who it's talking to, who it's talking about, okay? And what it has to do with, there's two tenses and all the other verbs, even the modifiers are conjugated the exact same way, all right? And this is pretty cool, okay? The two tenses work like this. In English, we say, well, I just finished eating, or I just finished my watching my TV show, or I just finished my shower, okay? Uh, Cece in Spanish, yo acabo de comer, yo acabo de ducharme, okay? Hebrew uses that as, it's called the perfect tense. That means it's in the past, okay? But it's not gone forever. I just finished taking a shower, if you think about that, implies that there's probably going to be another shower in my near future. I just finished eating. I that implies so. that there's going to be another dinner or whatever in my near future. Okay? So that alone tells you that the Hebrew view of verbs delineating time is not as delineated as it is in English. The second verb tense is the imperfect, it's called. There's a tense in English. There's a tense in Spanish and a lot of other languages, and it's called the present progressive tense. And it's like Wayne is reading this paper now. He's not going to be reading this paper forever. Him reading the paper is working itself toward a conclusion and a transformation. In a way that Hebrew verb is less about time 
and more. And this is a this is a very difficult concept for Greek categorizing thinkers to think. But it's more less about time, and it's more about filling a space, filling a space. So there's the very much the idea of a totality of a group, the totality of a collective, and there is a totality in time. It's a bit of a mind stretch, but if you think about it in a minute, it really, really makes sense. So in the Bible, in the word, in the Torah, most... And when I say most, I mean 90 plus percent of all verbs in the Torah, all of them are conjugated in these two ways. Remember how I told you about those modifiers? In Hebrew, it's called the binyan. If you don't know what the binyan is, don't worry about it. They're just different ways that words can be vocalized to enhance its meaning or change its meaning a little bit. They're only 9% that are used that that follow that binion about 90 plus percent of them follow the call what's called the call tense the call and it's quite straightforward and all of them are conjugated exactly as i said you have the perfect which means i just finished doing something but that implies that i'll do it again and then you have the imperfect i'm doing something now it's working its way to completion and that is something that is used to express or translate in English a future tense or sometimes a present tense. Is there any question so far? Because yeah. if you haven't heard this, this can really blow your mind. Any questions? So with this in mind, brothers and sisters, Let's take some very, very known passages that we're all familiar with, that I've researched, they're in this tense, and let's see what the Hebrew is really trying to tell us, okay? Remember this, I'm not saying this is a commercial, I'm saying this just as a scholastic fact. The King James Bible that brought in all of these Hebrew and Greek scholars to translate that Bible into English did so because, and this is gonna sound, well, of course, Wayne, that's obvious. No, stick with me. They did so, so that King James could say, this is the translation. But if you read the King James Bible, especially Samuel, especially Kings, especially Chronicles, it has a very strong bias toward monarchy. Next time you read those books, look out for it. Look out for it. It's, the King James Bible is very unwilling to disparage royalty. Okay? So it had an agenda. And that's the point of what I'm trying to make. It had an agenda and most English Bibles, okay, use the King James basically as they have that as their ancestor. So what we're going to do as brothers and sisters, we are going to take some very basic, well-known Bible passages, and we're going to kind of see them through Hebrew eyes, okay? 
Let me start with a really, really, really straightforward one. In Revelation, Yeshua says, I stand at the door and knock. Well, if is I stand at the door is in this imperfect tense. And if I knock is in this imperfect tense, what is Yeshua saying to all of us? It's used in the context of a, of a church. What's that, Andrew? He keeps, uh, he, you know, he's a persistent. There you go. Everybody here, Andrew? I continually stand at the door. I continually knock. And I'm going to stay here and knock until you open the door. I'm not going to get frustrated and go away if I have to stand out here and keep knocking because that's my nature. Ask and ye shall receive. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. Again, if these verbs are in this present progressive tense, what is Yeshua saying? Don't stop. <laughs> We're all supposed to be nags. <laughs> a, a holy, they call that a holy nudge. <laughs> now pair that with what he says right after it. He is telling us, he's encouraging us as believers, knock, seek, you know, knock and the, and the door shall be open. Seek and you, and you shall find. The verse right after it is, your father in heaven is not going to, if, if a son or daughter asks a father for a loaf of bread, is the father going to give them a stone? If the son asks the father for a staff, is he going to give them a snake? That's the verse right after, right after the seek, knock. So what is Yeshua saying to us? I don't know. In some ways, you know, if reflecting on the Bible means that uh, maybe God can forget and you have to remind him over and over. Like it, you know, like uh, in the Torah, it talks about, you know, reminding him in the Tanakh and, you know, reminding, oh, I remembered because you guys, you know, called on me or whatever. He uses that term. He uses that term and compares himself, compares us to children asking their father for very basic things. And his father being very, very, very willing to provide to us all the time. Not here. Here's your bread. Now go off. No, right well, daddy, I really need a step. Okay, here's your step. Go. Do not bother me again. That's not who he presents himself to be in these passages. Uh, in terms of uh, when God remembers in the Hebrew Bible, Andrew, um, it's not it's not the same as as you or I remembering. Like when it says he re like he remembered Noah on the ark, it wasn't like, oh, I forgot. I put this guy with all those animals and like, oh, <laughs> you know, God isn't 
it, it's not the same as well, I had this bow wrapped around my finger. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, but if you if you see where the word remember occurs, it's that God uh, rescues in that moment or or intervenes in that moment. So it's it's using uh, it's kind of like your other question the 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 Hebrew Bible uses human language uses uses Hebrew to convey something that's very hard to understand, which is the Lord um, and sometimes uses human language. But we know that he's not like us. Um, he remembered Sarah and she gave birth. Right. So that doesn't mean he forgot necessarily. So it's a little different for the Lord than for us. But it, he, the Bible does use that language to get kind of, but it's 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 a lot of its metaphor. I think is what what Wayne is saying, and you can you can chime in here, Wayne. But the way I understand it, a lot of language is 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 really metaphor, and because it's it's hard to understand the nature of God, but we have these just these words, this language, this holy language to do it. So sorry, Yeshua. Yeshua yeah. was absolutely, you know, I mean, the Semitic languages are really, really beautiful because they're just peppered with metaphors, peppered with metaphors. And that is very, very clear in the Gospels. I mean, from the very first story, you know, the Lord calls to Cain and says, where is your brother Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, the, your Cain's blood cries from the earth. That's very metaphorical. Okay, we move right. to the words of Yeshua. Um, the thing that comes to my mind very immediate is him talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus said, you know, Yeshua said, you have to be born again. <laughs> That's a metaphor. And yeah. Nicodemus, as a learned Pharisee, took him quite literally. And in my, in my eyes, very condescendingly and like, oh, you poor little nincompoop. <laughs> Can a man hey. enter into his mother's womb again? You know, it's like, come on, dude. <laughs> well, Yeshua was talking metaphorically because he was trying to get Nicodemus to see something that should have been right obvious to him, especially if he had studied to be a Pharisee since he was a young boy. These things should be, and Yeshua tells him that. You say you're a son of Israel, but you don't even know these, you can't even grasp these things. How are you supposed to be? How are you supposed to teach the people? Reread that story. And it's John three um, filled with metaphor. All of Jesus's, all of, all of his parables are all metaphors. They're farming metaphors. Uh, one that sticks to mind. I told you earlier that the Hebrews were very keen observers of nature. And Yeshua uses that to teach lessons. Um, Yeshua says to the, the Pharisees, you, you when, when the sky is red, you know that it's going to be good fishing that day or something like that. You can see the signs of the land. How come you can't see the signs of the times? So you have this Hebraic thought, okay, that is very, very close to nature. Brother, Brother Wayne. Yeah, go ahead, man. Um, I uh, really enlightened when I when I was in your uh, class about thinking Hebraically it, and it's how difficult it is because we're brought up here and um, the expression uh, one is done, one and done. And when you look at the Bible and you see how it's taught where, you know, Old Testament thinking, oh, old, it's done, you know, move on to the next thing. Um, yeah. And you could actually look at, like you said, ask and receive, seek and find, knock, 
should be open. And, you know, the way we're taught, you know, in this country and to think uh, in English, it's okay, what's the next thing? You know, what's the next yeah. thing going to happen? Um, but when we take a step back and think hebraically, there, um, you know, the Lord doesn't put us in that uh, category where we're, we're deciding, well, this is a certain amount of time. You know, it's always, the Lord will always be there. He always was and always will be. And um, it, it's pretty enlightening. And it's, and it, I also find it very difficult because so much, um, you know, how we're taught here in our, our way. Um, so it, it's, um, it's really a, a pleasure and, and a, a, a great experience to look at things more than just, you know, one way. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm finding it difficult, but um, I, I think at one step at a, at a time, it's not like I'm going to get rid of one and yeah, it's, uh, go to the it other. It is difficult, Robert. It is yeah. difficult. You know, we should expect it to be difficult. The, the word is meant to be wrestled with, like Jacek, you know, like Jacob and Esau. You know, it is difficult because it's like, wow. I mean, that's just very mind expanding. Let's get to another very, very, very easy passage. Okay, it's Kathy. Yes. Um, so about the signs, there's a verse. I think it's a verse. Might have been a philosopher who said it, but. Um, the Greeks look for wisdom and the Jews look for signs, mm. kind of a different way of thinking. Right. The Jews had a relationship with God. And so um, this might point a little bit towards what I think Andrew was saying, but their relationship with God was revelation. It was revelatory. Mm. So right. they didn't need wisdom. They needed confirmation, so to speak. So exactly. that's a different difference between thinking, you know, in a Greek way and in a, the where the Jews were coming from, from their perspective. Very, very appreciate your words, Kathy. Yeah. Did everybody hear what Kathy said? The Greeks were trying to understand their world through logic. Okay. How many of you love your son or daughter because it's logical to do so? Raise your <laughs> hand. <laughs> I mean, come on. I know. Also, a lot of see, I think, you, think you, know, you bring up good points. Go ahead, Robert. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, you think it's not logic because, you know, you have these yelling, screaming, running around kids. I mean, I know it's years ago. Now I have grandchildren, but it's like, but you love them no matter what. So it's not something you say, well, I... <laughs> but right. It's just the concept of love. You know, is yeah. that a logical, logical yeah, emotion? Henry, Henry, do you love Diane? Tom, do you love Margie? David, do you love Sonia? Eric, do you love Bonnie? Because it just makes sense too. <laughs> so you have this whole school of Greek thought, and guess what? Where are the Stoics now? You know, where are the Pythagoreans now? Because doing it through the mind didn't work. You can only make sense, like Kathy said of life through what God reveals to you, what God has revealed to us, telling us that we were born in his image and he loves us so much that our salvation of, of, of reconnection with him is worth his while to do the most extreme things through sending Yeshua. 
you make me think of something else. In the evangelical church, there's this big argument of where does the body end and the soul start? Where does the soul end and the spirit start? There's the body, there's the mind, there's the spirit, there's the soul. The Hebrews would have been like, what? <laughs> In Hebrew, if you read the Hebrew of the Torah, there's no word for, for there's no word for body. It's translated into English very use, loosely as flesh, but it basically means corpse. In Genesis 2, 7, the Lord breathed his ruach into the dust of the ground that he formed to make Adam, and he became a living nephesh. To the Hebrews, there was no separation between a body and a soul. They wouldn't have been able to wrap their minds around that. What about the... What? Uh... What about the, uh, in the Torah, doesn't it say, love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Ah, but you see, Andrew, put your hand on your heart. Okay, put your hand right here on the sides of your neck. You see right here, when you're in vibe with the breath of God, it's easy for a non-scientific society to conclude that that breath was absorbed right into these veins. And I know that sounds extreme, but I'm gonna give you, some, I'm gonna give you a, some evidence for that theory. How did the Lord tell the priests to kill the, the animals at sacrifice? <laughs> one <laughs> continuous deep slice across the throat where you sever these veins the animal does not suffer indeed the animal does not know what's coming because the life is in the blood and in genesis 2 7 he links life with the ruach that he breathed into adam and he became a living nephesh in other words the hebrews would have said without life if a person is dead okay that's a body. So life means an enlivened body by the spirit of God, by the Ruach of God. There was no delineation between spirit, soul, mind, heart. You mentioned the word heart. Okay. Heart also what is linguistically relates to the Hebrew word for binding. As David is bound to Sonia. We got off track here, but I never mind getting off track. Wasn't the heart in the Hebrew thinking, wasn't the heart the center of thought? Not what? not what we think of in the brain and the mind, but with the Jews, wasn't it with within the heart? Thought was... Me o, me o deja. Me o deja. When somebody asks you in Hebrew, how you doing? What's your answer? Baruch Hashem. Yeah, <laughs> Tov me'od in modern Hebrew. I'm doing exceedingly. I'm doing strongly well. Okay. When you say me'odecha with all of your strength, as it's translated into English, it means all of your resources. You have a daughter, Kathy, that you are so proud of. And I know that because you, you cavell about her all the time. And it's very refreshing to see because you as a mother, you have poured all of your me'odecha to make sure that she grows up to a well-adjusted, happy girl who is strong enough to pursue her own life, right? Hopefully. <laughs> That's me, Odecha. 
Now, that part you could argue was closely tied to the heart because in, in Hebrew, they, it, the word seems to imply that the seat of the emotions was the bowels. Yeah. Emotions. I love you with all of my bowels, you know? But the thought <laughs> process, the, don't they, I could be wrong on this, but I know with the Greeks, you know, it's in the mind, but in the thought process for the Hebrews, wasn't it in the heart? They wouldn't the have emotions said the, the Hebrews, was in the kidneys or something like that. They, Some. The Hebrews really wouldn't have noticed. They wouldn't have delineated it so much. Okay. So the Bible Project has a, a good uh, series of videos and explanations, and they break down each, each of these things in the, in the Shema. Um, and as Wayne said, Mayod is, is your muchness, right? With all your Mayodecha, that's like with all that he said, you know, your strength and with all your heart, um, as, as I understand it, the heart is kind of like the will, right? So, you know, the, the idea of the Shema is like all these, all these different aspects of you. But I think Wayne's main point is that the, the body soul, um, separation is a dichotomy it's wasn't a a thing to the hebrews yeah it wasn't you know so sometimes when i pray for folks i'll say let's pray for these beautiful souls right for these nefeshim nefeshim right um because that's kind of a a more hebrew so it's just kind of that that way of thinking as opposed to separating body and soul um so the the hope of the resurrection is is a renewed body it's that's the the jewish hope right um and that's what you see in first corinthians and things like that so it's just kind of understanding that and um in terms of these these different things um the as i understand it the heart is is basically the will and the mind is is thought and things like that but it's just loving god with all the all the parts of you the lord is my shepherd i shall not want I like this passage and I bring it up because I think that if we look at the way that the verbs are translated into English, it's probably about as close to the Hebrew idea as you can get, as it's possible to get with a language like English. Very limited. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Does that mean I shall not want five minutes from now? I shall not want an hour from now because it's in a future tense. So if it was in a future tense, what was the original Hebrew tense of that verb? It was in the imperfect. Pardon me. It was in the imperfect. Okay. The Lord continually is my shepherd. I continually will not lack. Yea, though I walk through the valley overshadowed by death in the Hebrew, the shadow of death, sorry, overshadowed by death in the Hebrew, I will never fear because his rod, what he uses to discipline me when I need it, and his staff, what he uses to pull me out of a ravine, what he uses to keep me out of trouble, if I need it, is always comforting me. Because Yeshua is my shepherd, I am always lying down in green pastures, lush pastures. I am always drinking out of still waters. 
Another clue of the Hebrews' ability to observe nature. How many of you grew up on a farm? Will sheep drink out of a will sheep drink out of a flowing stream? Will goats drink out of a flowing stream? No. They'll drink out of a stream that isn't flowing or someone that's quiet, or they'll drink out of water that's put in a trough. They won't drink out of a flowing stream for whatever reason. He leadeth me beside still waters. He leadeth me in lush pastures. That implies two things, an abundance of food and an abundance of padding, like comfort. So for, for when they lay down and sleep, they're not lying directly on a rocky ground. And now we're going to dig a little deeper. I'm reading now from Exodus 3. And I'm going to be skipping around a little bit. Moses was taking care of sheep with his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he left the sheep to the far side of the desert. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God, also called, also referred to as Sinai in other passages of the Torah. The messenger of the Lord appeared to him there in flames of fire coming out of a bush. Moses looked, and although the bush was on fire, it was not burning. It was not burning up. So he thought, why isn't this bush burning up? I must go over there and see what's going on here. And the Lord saw that Moses had come over to it, and God called to him from the bush, saying, Moses, Moses. Moses answered, here I am. God said, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then there's a passage where God tells Moses that he's the one that's chosen to free the Hebrews from uh, uh, slavery in Egypt. I'm skipping down a few verses. Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you. This is the proof that I sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, all of you will worship God on this mountain, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. Then Moses replied to God, suppose I go to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me. And they will ask me, what's his name? All right. And this was a very logical this, this was a very sensible question at that time, okay? Gods had names, all right? Think of all the Greek gods, the Roman gods, okay? If you're familiar with the, with the um, Canaanite pantheon, they all had proper names, all right? Zeus, Jupiter, uh, El, uh, Mat, Tammuz, Marduk, yada, 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 okay? And God is saying, God answered Moses, I am who I am. That is what you must say to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, if you look at this passage in the Hebrew, 
it translates very badly to English. I am who I am and I will be who I will be. But knowing what we know now about Hebrew verbs, how would this verb be more accurately translated? I am now who I am now, and I am continually being forever and always who I am now. Who I will be a second from now is who I will eternally be. Who I will be an hour from now is who I will eternally be. Who I will be infinity from now is who I eternally will be. And God by doing this is making a huge philosophical and theological statement to Moses saying that unlike all the gods of Egypt, remember, we kind of lose sight. Moses was raised in an Egyptian court. He was, pro he was just as familiar with the Egyptian pantheon because he was a worshiper of the Egyptian pantheon. Okay. He probably knew all the tricks of the priests. And God is saying, you, Moses, you're thinking of this God is the God of this. And this God is the God of this. And ne'er the two shall meet. In other words, the God of the water is not the same God of the wheat. The God of the Nile is not the same God as the sky. You're seeing a burning bush. Fire was controlled by a goddess. Foliage was overseen by another god. And ne'er the two shall meet. The goddess of fire was not, didn't have any jurisdiction over the god of foliage. You see what I'm saying? So he sees a burning bush and it's on fire, but it's not being consumed. So he's like, what is this? What the world is going on here? The God of fire usually wins over the God of wood in this case, in a desert. So right now his mind is reeling because in his mind, in Egyptian thinking, he's like, what happened to these gods that should be controlling this? The bush isn't burning, but it's clearly on fire. Do you guys see what I'm saying? Am I explaining myself okay? It's very mind-stretching, okay? And God is making a huge theological statement. This is who I am. This is how I revealed myself to you and called myself to you. I am the totality of everything. I'm the God of fire. I'm the God of water. I'm the God of trees. I'm the God of everything. And look what I can do. Your Egyptian gods, sorry. It's an enormous paradigm changing shift in, 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 in Moses's theology and Moses's sense. And you can, you, from this, you understand brothers and sisters, 
Why did he spend all that time, 40 years alone? Because he had to, God had to undo all of that Egyptian categorical theological thinking to teach him this is the God that I am. And I'm going to ask you a question. What if when God says, I am who I am and I will be who I will be, as it is translated in English, what if as God is saying to you, Robert, I am the God which is. In 20 minutes, Robert, is he going to be the God which was or is he still going to be the God which is? He's God for now, for past and future and never stop. He's never going to stop. Nell is the God which is, as you're listening to these words, is he going to stop ising in an hour? No. No, he'll forever be. Exactly. Henry, has God stopped with Diane and her praise report about her healing? Has he stopped ising? Henry seems to be. Has he stopped ising, Henry, in your life and Diane's life? I think he's he's talking. I think you're muted, Henry. It's like I don't know how to work this thing. Don't feel bad, Henry. I don't either. How about you, Reese? Well, he is all the time. He is. When you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, is he stopped ising at two thirty? He's always ising. A year from now, is he still going to be ising in your life? He'll still be ising. Right. Kind of opens your eyes a little bit. Okay. And now we're going to go to the most precious name of all. And I am reading. Can I ask a question? Sure, Kathy, please. Sorry to interrupt. Um, no, please. That's what this is for. I think, I think you're also revealing a conundrum that a Greek would have reading the story of the burning bush, because I agree. It's like, how can it be burning and not being consumed? And, right. But for the Hebrews, they tend to um, allow both and, and in the same right. space. And, and the Lord had to teach them that Catholic. Yeah. The Lord had to teach them that, you know, we think that once the Hebrews left Egypt, Oh, they were just, you know, monotheist, you know, God worshipers walking out of Egypt. And they and you yeah. read the Torah, you read, no, they were anything but. No, yeah. And their but, journey in the desert is God had to work that out of them. Yeah. And still conundrum. they didn't get it. That either or kind of conundrum. It was not both an and that you get in the Hebraisms. Um there's a, an array, there's a range, like you pointed out in the language, there's a range of possibilities that are working within that. So it's okay, even now today, if we are reading the text, it might be more challenging for people of the Greek you know, way of thinking, how can a bush be, must be a metaphor, you know, that's, it's an allegory where I tend to read it as a literal activity, the bush was on I fire too. and I it wasn't too. burning. And, yeah. um, but someone new coming to it might 
look at it and go, well, maybe it's a metaphor or an allegory for something where, because it's either or, how can it be doing both kind of thing? I think that's what you sound like you're revealing that in your examples. Yeah, Kathy, let me add a facet onto that. I mean, the Greeks would have read this and they would have gone, okay, either he's absolutely nuts, okay, or he doesn't understand theology. You know, this guy does not understand how the gods work. Well, he did understand how the gods worked. He spent 40 years or however long he did as a, a, a prince in the Egyptian court. Yeah. He knew exactly how Egyptian gods, yeah. Egyptian idols worked. Right. Okay? And the Greeks would have thought categorically too. You read these people's creation myths and they say nothing about their gods being gods of creation. It's almost like creation conda almost was, and they're kind of like developing it somehow. But the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light and there was darkness and the Lord separated them. And in college, people would say, well, that's stupid. You know, well, how can there be light and dark and how can there be day and night? And there wasn't even a sun or a moon made yet, if you read the story. And I was like, <laughs> what are you, six? I mean, that's not the point. God has control over light and darkness without needing a sun or a moon. He doesn't need an intermediary to, to reveal himself. Yeah. He didn't need, he, need, he didn't need to make a sun first for there to be light. Right. Exactly. Right? Yeah, and the same God that made the light made the darkness. The right. same God that made the water made the land. The same God that made the birds of the sky made the creepy, crawly things of the earth. This was not the case in polytheistic thought. No, yeah. There was a God of chickens. There was a God of livestock. There was a God of mildew in the, in the, Ro in the Roman pantheon. There was a God of mildew. I didn't know that. There was a God of the hearth that only controlled literally the door. Of your, of your home, and that's all they protected. But once somebody was inside and once they went outside, that God lost your jurisdiction. You need a new God. <laughs> right, but it the Lord like is saying to Moses, I'm, yeah. I'm everywhere. <laughs> I'm the God like of everything. And not only that, I'm mobile, which right. was a, I, can't, I can't express what a huge game changer that was. Yeah. This is why I just get sick to my stomach, you know, when I, when I watch these shows on and, and people say, you know, that Ezekiel, you know, saw a vision of a UFO. <laughs> and I'm like, could you cheapen it anymore? What Ezekiel saw with the Lord on his throne and the wheels and the wings and everything was the Lord saying, look, guys, I know you're in exile. And you're in exile because you sinned, you turned to other gods. But I haven't left you. Doesn't matter where you're exiled to. You could be exiled to Jupiter. I'm yeah. still going to be with you. And, and, and they didn't think of gods as being mobile at that time. Yeah. A god was a god of one city. A god was a god of one geographical area. Once you went out of that area, New that god. wasn't your god anymore. God had no jurisdiction. Right. Once I go to West Virginia... I'm not on the government of Virginia's jurisdiction anymore. I'm in, I'm in their jurisdiction. If I commit a crime, West Virginia police are going to handle me, okay? 
So the fact that they said Abraham had great faith, how did he have faith? Because God said, take up your stuff and go, and I will be with you. Game changer. You're going to follow me if I leave the city? Gods don't do that. That's why he was a man of great faith. Yeah. Okay, well, I love getting sidetracked. I love going off on tangents. So doesn't bother me at all. It's like you saw a Marvel movie or something, you know. <laughs> I don't mind rabbit holes, so I'm I love questions, and I'm glad you guys ask questions. That means you're engaged. That means that the spirit is prompting you, and I love it. Okay, questions are not, as my grandmother said, the only dumb questions are the one you don't ask. Questions yeah. are not a sign of ignorance; they're a sign of interest and intelligence. Okay, Matthew, chapter one, verse twenty. Verse 19, rather. Her husband, Joseph, was an honorable man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the marriage agreement with her secretly. Joseph had this in mind when an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. The angel said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will name his name Yeshua. Okay, now let's dissect that name, shall we? It's in English as salvation, or it's in English as God saves. Okay, but what if I told you that whenever you have a yud on the front of a Hebrew root, it does two things to it. When we're talking about a name like Ezekiel, Isaiah, okay, um, something like uh, Joel is another good example. When you have that, that yah on the beginning, it is kind of like a signature for the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? So the name comes from the root that means salvation, but the yud, one can argue that linguistically, it also does something else to the noun. It makes it into a verb. Not that Yeshua's name was a verb. Try to follow me. Try to follow me. And if I'm, and if I'm not speaking clearly, ask me to clear it up. Okay? Um, in this sense, Yeshua's name is translated into English as God is salvation, or more closely, God is saves but god saves from what what does that even mean god saves or what if thinking hebraically it means something deeper god continually saves god is saving it might be working its way to completion, but that's on his terms. God is saving. But when you think of the word saving, that's a bad English translation. I assert, this is my opinion. The Holy Spirit did not, teach, did not tell me to say this, okay? It has been my opinion all along that in the context of Judaism, of exile, and return of exile 
and God bringing them back. You have to see the word save, not like God saves you from a fire. God restores your position. And in Yeshua, if his name is God restores, basically what it's saying is that God is restoring your position as my children, as my sons. Think of the prophets. They're, they're just peppered with, I will bring you back to the land and I will be your faithful, you know, sovereign, you know, stuff like that. It's God fulfilling a covenant and this fulfilling of a covenant that he made with our ancestors, brothers and sisters, is condensed in that one name of Messiah. I will restore you and I will prosper you. Any thoughts on that? I have. I, I've been just thinking. So I, I, I'm. So we're talking about you know thinking Hebraically, and you know part of the conversation. <clears throat> well, you know, um, it's it's actually you know his people learning more about God on the way they go, and so I mean. Uh, right. So Abraham tested with his faith. But, uh, you know, like you said, uh, Moses was coming out of Egypt and he, he knows a lot about um, the Egyptian, you know, gods. And so that kind of influences thinking. So, uh, uh, you know, right. That, and God had to change that thinking. Right. Right. So this is so I mean, I, so when you are thinking Hebraically, are you are we kind of like saying, OK, we're thinking Hebraically as a uh, first century Hebrew or a, um, you know, uh, uh, pre-second millennia uh, Hebrew. One could make the argument, Andrew, either one. One, may, one could make the argument that the reason that God revealed himself that way to Moses is to change his paradigm of what a God could do, of what his narrow definition of a God was. And usually when I'm up at the Bema, I try to pitch you into the mind of a second temple Jew. Or if I'm talking about the, um, you know, a story out of, out of the prophets or whatever, I try to pitch you in the mind to those that would be in that area and would hear that story for the first time. And it's all kind of like what I opened with, Andrew. I mean, it's just like um, culture and perception. And a lot of how the way we perceive things has a lot to do with culture and it has a lot to do with the way we speak and understand languages. That is a reflection. Our language and the language that we use is a reflection of how we think, of how we perceive things, of how we interpret things. Does that make sense? Yeah. And in this regard, the Hebrews would not have seen, uh, they, would, they would have not have heard the name Yeshua and thought, okay, God saves one day, sweet by and by, pie in the sky. When he comes again, he's going to save me. 
They would have seen the ministry of Yeshua as a continual work of God fulfilling his covenants. In other words, God ain't dead and God did not leave us with Isaiah. What I'm, what I'm speaking of specifically, Andrew, is that Isaiah and some of the minor prophets, the Pharisees thought that God had basically stopped interacting in humanity 700 years before the time of Yeshua. And you see the ministry of Yeshua. And it's like God has not stopped fulfilling his covenants. And he's doing it through this guy. Some, some folks still think that way. That God... Exactly, exactly, David. Exactly. Did everybody hear the rabbi? Most people think that way, especially if they're Americans, because they don't understand Hebraic thinking. They, they, they put their American framework and they squeeze the Bible into it. So everything's going to happen one day. One day I'm going to get saved. One day. God's restoring us all the time now. Reese, God is restoring you. Whenever you think of the name of Yeshua, he is God restoring Reese. I believe that. That's right. <laughs> It's an ever-present reality. It's not some fluffy, geez, it would be nice if that was, it's not some fluffy, esoteric, you know, removed thing. He's way up here, we're way down here, and maybe one day we'll understand. God reveals himself to us through the use of Hebrew, I believe. I get really, I lose a lot of patience when people try to say, oh, to understand God, he's so, you know, you, you do, have you guys ever noticed how, <laughs> and I kind of get a chuckle out of this. Have you guys ever noticed how, you know, people always say God is under, he's unreachable. He's unobtainable. You can't understand him. He's just, he's just far above human logic. You just can't put into words to understand God. And yet, within the same breath, they'll give a lot of very, very fluffy Latinic and Greek verb words to overturn what they just said. God is omnipotent. He's omnipresent. You know, they think of all these fluffy terms to just negate everything they said. God has revealed himself, brothers and sisters, to us directly. Anyone that tells you you got to read in between the lines to understand God, God is the theology is on the lines, brothers and sisters. God is very clear. Now, sometimes that requires us to leave our Greek thinking and enter into a more Hebraic way of thinking. So it requires something of us. But the theology is on the lines, brothers and sisters. Through the burning bush, God told Moses, this is what I can do. And so much more. And on the tree, 
you were resurrected. And he taught us, this is what I can do. I can restore you to a covenantal standing so that my father can fulfill all of his promises. So it requires a shift in our thinking to meet there. And that's why I wanted to do this TikTok. Did I say something? Anything you want, Kathy, yeah. Um, I think that's the unique God as well, because, or the Hebrew God, because the Jews had revelation given by God. They had the word um, handed down. And the Greeks didn't have any um, document handed down from their gods. You know, they didn't, they didn't have a Torah, the Greeks. No, absolutely. There were no, there were no religious scriptures at all. If you look at other prevalent religions at the time, the Canaanites had, had considerable writings, but as far as the Greek and Roman gods and, and Kathy, you'll appreciate this because I know you're into, you know, the academic part of this, which I've always appreciated about you. They were more, the gods were more custodial gods. Yeah. And of, of the, of the other pantheons at the time of Yeshua. Yeah. And, and they didn't like, they didn't have a rapport. So they didn't have um, revelation that they handed down to their prophets right the only religious texts were done but were written by priests right you know psalms but not like from god exactly the hebrews were unique in that in that very uh, yeah very brothers and sisters what i mean by custodial gods these are god and i'm speaking like what kathy and i were talking about egyptian gods greek gods roman gods they didn't care about you know you had gods of clothing, you had a gods of cloth, you had gods of mildew, you had gods of cooking oil, you had gods of, you know, Kraft macaroni and cheese, but you didn't have any gods that cared one way or another about having a personal relationship with you. You were not born in in the image of Zeus to the Greeks. They would have been like, what? No, I'm not. He's a god. I'm a human. That's the way it is. Okay. There was none of that. There was None of that in Greek or Roman and really any other religion that I can think of. Mm-hmm. For instance, the Babylonians, they believe that an ogre-like God cut his finger and spilled some blood on the ground. And for whatever reason, that, that mud became humans, which really tells you a lot about how the Babylonians thought of themselves in relation to their gods. You know, we're just dirt. We're just, you know, we're just you know, we're just spit. Okay. But when I mean custodial gods, I mean, gods that took care of what you see, what you feel, what you smell and what you, you know, you hear, but they had no, absolutely no interest in a personal relationship with humans at all. Right. They are capricious. Right. Uh, They're fickle and um, the way to appease them. And it was a system of appeasement. It wasn't relational and covenantal like it was for the Hebrews. Right. And the Hebrew God makes promises 
fulfills vows to his children. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew God is a game changer. And you guys, you guys know that I'm talking about the Hebrew God as being the only God, and he's a game changer as compared to idols, to the pagans' conception of what a God was. You, you, y'all hear that from me, right? Okay. Yeah. I actually have a talk that I'm preparing on that very, <laughs> that very issue is like, how was it viewed? How did they view it? Um, you know, the gods in, in the realm, the spiritual realm. So, and how did they interact with them and how does Paul handle that? This, so that's, I'm starting to think in that direction because it does in, in order to understand I think um, some of those conversations that Paul is having with the Greeks, for example, on the um, Areopagus is you got to understand the Greek concepts, the Greek mindset, and what a God meant for them and how we might define a God, for example, to understand that conversation. And it also affects some of the verses that we have in Paul's epistles. So it's important to have this discussion because we need to be able to step into that um, second temple period to understand self-out of what, what a God is and put ourselves in their situation and what was Paul dealing with, for example. So I think that's a really important reason to have this conversation because we have to understand it from their cultural perspective and uh, what was the environment that the apostles and Jesus found himself in. And it was a polytheistic, you know, environment. And um, so how do we define who the Hebrew God is? How do we show that uniqueness? How do we demonstrate that he's the one and only true God, you know, and that's the calling upon Israel. So I think that's why it's really important to understand the mindsets, the difference between the Greek way of thinking and the Hebrew way of thinking. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Kathy, and I appreciate your words. Um, in a very short Reader's Digest version, the pagans' relationship was their gods were appeasing them to ward off evil because the pagans always felt that they were kind of whipped around by fate. But then you have the God of Israel, and even though the sacrificial system seems very primitive to us, it was never meant to be seen as that. This was a God who wanted to share a meal, who wanted to commune with his children. And that's a Reader's Digest version of what the whole sacrificial system was about. It's because the God of Israel wants to commune with his creation, wants to restore a relationship between his his creation and him, the pagan gods, you basically appease them to ward off their anger. <laughs> I always think of it like this, Kathy, and everybody, it never ceases to fail me, okay? My kids, Adam and Kaylee, I gotta say, they were as good as gold. They never pulled stuff like this. But I've never been to a grocery store once in my life where I haven't seen you know, some three-year-old you know, I want this, you know, in the candy, aisle. I want this, I want this, I want this, I want that. And you can hear them all across the freaking grocery store. I want this, I want this. And you know, that 20 something millennial mom, okay, okay, you be good, you be good. You know, asking the kids permission, you be good, I'll buy you this candy bar. Okay. You know, she's buying a candy bar to appease yeah. the, 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 the three-year-old from having a tantrum. 
Mm-hmm. And that's basically what the, the pagans' relationships to their God was. Yeah. Even in the quote unquote Old Testament, okay, God wanted to commune with his creation. Mm-hmm. Right. But he also, you when you when you're a parent, you always want your children, they have to follow a certain set of rules for their own safety. Right. They're not allowed to go run in the middle of 95. So you put boundaries on them. Yeah. And the God of Israel is a God of purity and holiness. So he yeah. asked the same of his followers. And he gave okay? them those instructions. We do the same he thing. Guys, you all ask your husbands and wives, yeah. you got to shower and wear deodorant, please. You know? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a similar principle. It's not God trying to, you know, keep us, you know, you know, yes, sir, yes, sir, enslaved. It's not like that. And especially yeah. then Yeshua came along and just, exp- he just expanded the game, baby. He was just like, you know what? This is who God is. Not only does he want to commune with you, but he wants a permanent parent-sonship relationship with you. And if that includes not you becoming holy, but by my blood making you holy, because you can't do it on your own. Hmm. So Wayne. be it. Yeah, Wayne, I, I have a question. Um, this is food for thought. Um, when, we, when we're trying to explain uh, in the simplest way about Hebraic thinking, and we're talking, obviously, to people here who think in the Greek thought mindset, how can we avoid something to say, well, my way of thinking uh, is um, the w- right way and you're the wrong way, rather than go down that where can we see where the bridge is? Just like us being messianic, messianic. Um, how can we see a bridge between the two thoughts of, of uh, the Greek way and, and the Hebraic way to make it uh, compatible and, and, and have an open um, conversation rather than to say, well, my way is my way, the way of thinking. And <laughs> so help me in that, in that um, thought process there, brother. Two, two, I would get. I would say two things, Robert. I would say one thing, as as kind of like an academic thing, and I would say another thing just directed at you, Robert, because you are such a sweet, wonderful human being. Okay, number one, you've got to understand the character of who the Lord has revealed Himself to be. Okay, I know if I ask Adam or Kaylee to do something for me. I don't have to beg them. I don't have to stay on them. I don't have to remind them. I know they're going to do it because I know their character. That is their nature. And when you think of the Lord, when you think of the Lord of Israel, and you think of what he did through Messiah Yeshua, he's revealing to you his character. And that revelation, Robert, is the bridge. And you know just being the person that you are, my brother, your wonderful daughters. You know, there's not a thing in this world they wouldn't do for you. Because you know their character and they know yours. That's the bridge, Robert. The bridge is already built and he built it. Mm. He built it to get to us, not the other way around. He didn't say, and I'm, I'm not trying to be ugly to anybody, but it's, it's not like Buddhists where... You have to obtain different levels. You have to climb chakras 
to get to enlightenment. The Lord said, no, I'm throwing a rope down and I'm, I'm shimmying down like a fireman. He's already built that bridge. The bridge is already there. But to answer your question, know the character of who God has revealed himself to be. Did that answer your question or is that about as vague uh, as mine? A, a little vague because when I have conversations and you know how I am, I, I approach pretty much anybody. I don't have an agenda, you know, no matter what religious background, diverse background. And um, I, I go with not to argue, not to, but just to, to love the way the Lord loves us. And just to have a point of, rather than to put it in the light, well, you break way is the right way and you're the wrong way, but help them see that why this, this is how the Lord is, is the greater picture. To me, thinking Hebraically is the largest sense and that you have to limit yourself to this. But I don't want to say, well, your way of thinking is wrong. <laughs> right. You know? and I, no, and you're right. And you're right not to do that, Robert. Right. Think of the way that Yeshua handled people in the Gospels. Okay. Yeshua never walked up to someone and said, you terrible sinner, you're going to hell. Right. right. He said, come here and let me, let me feed you. Let me heal you. The only, the only people that Yeshua was nasty to were the ultra-religious people who thought that they knew all the answers. Right. That was the only, that was the, the only time he really got snarky with people as far as, you know, you pit a right. wipe or stuff like that, you know, you're full of understanding were the people who thought they knew it all. Right. So the people so, that you're going to come across, Robert, right. that are seeking from you, they're not going to be the high and mighty. I dare say they're going to be the seekers. Correct. Uh, does that so, make sense? Yeah, yeah. The, I could um, say that to all of you. I could say that to all of you. Look how Yeshua loved people. Yeshua did not one time in the Gospels walk up to anyone and said, you terrible sinner, you're going to hell, and I'm going to laugh while you're, while you're doing that. Absolutely so, not. He went up to them and loved them, even if it would make him ritually unclean, even if it would give him a bad reputation. He got down on their level. It's easy to say that I forgive sins. But I tell you this, it's harder for me to say, pick up your mat and walk. Or it's harder for me to open your eyes so that you can see the blind person. And we could go on and on. We could, we could be here all night talking about miracles that Yeshua did for people. But never once did he say, you're that way because you deserve to be. So you can look at view Hebraic thinking as the bigger picture uh, and, and so to speak, to keep it simple, than, than to say, well, you're saved, but this is like God is continually doing things and um, it's not one and done. And he's, he's continually yeah. and he's invasive in our lives, just like mm -hmm. a parent is invasive in the lives of a toddler that they're trying to raise trying to teach how to read rabbi oh um i was just gonna say um it's a really good question robert and mm -hmm. uh i agree with 
what Wayne has said. And just from a congregational standpoint, uh, we're, we, we're thinking about relational shalom that's building on relational gospeling, right? And, right. <laughs> and the way that we share the gospel is, is through relationship. And if you look, if you apply what Wayne is saying to, to gospeling, uh, that's what Paul does, right? When Paul talks to the Greeks, he talks, he talks to them knowing their background, right? Knowing that they believe in a lot of gods. And this unknown God, this is the one that you need to follow, right? He's, he's talking to them because he understands their background. When he, when he shares the gospel with, with Jews, he starts from Abraham, right? And so, you know, it's, it's kind of like knowing your audience and knowing the background and these, knowing these different ways of thinking and thinking about how you think and then thinking about how others might think where they're coming from in order to communicate relationally the love of God. So that's, that's what we're, you know, that's what we're about in our community. And I think you can just apply these things that Wayne is, is teaching us to relational gospeling the way that, that Paul does. Man, thank right. you, Rabbi. Eric. Eric. Hey, bud. Uh, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say that, and this kind of goes to, to Robert a little bit too. I think back on what drew me to seek out the Lord. And that was a person that I seeked out because of the way he was, mm. his, his character. A man that never cursed, never had a bad thing to say about anyone, always had a good word, always had a smile on his face. And I saw a light in him that I wanted. So that prompted me to approach him. I knew he was a Christian, born again Christian, a very learned man in the scriptures. And I approached him and said, this is my, this is my problem. I don't know if Jesus is for me. So I want what you have. And I want to know more. But I'm Jewish and I don't know what to do here. And he explained it to me. And that's what led me to be where I am. Because I, I seeked him out because of his character. Hmm. So, well, Eric, I love that you shared that because I, it ties together. Go ahead, Eric. I'm sorry. Well, I'm just saying is I'd, I'd like to, that's the example I use. I want people to seek out the Lord because of what they see in me. I want to be the mirror. Hmm. We see that you, you say some beautiful things, Eric, because you just tied together what Rabbi and I have been saying all along. Rabbi's talking about that's a relational thing. That's you found Yeshua because, you know, through a positive relationship, Yeshua. And what I'm saying, which is I'm not saying that me and me and Rabbi are saying that basically the same thing. You, you saw a revelation. Yeshua used a person to reveal snippets of himself that attracted you and he did the same thing and in the, in the, he does the same thing in the torah 
So, I mean, you've tied together what the rabbi just finished saying and what I've been saying about revelation and stuff. That's beautiful, Eric. Thank you for sharing that. That's very personal. I'm very honored. Ladies and gentlemen, are there any questions, especially about verb usage or anything else that we've discussed? Because I could sit here all night. Let's, uh, I think it would be good to, good point to close. Um, and uh, I want to say thank you, Wayne. I, I, I'm sure I speak for all of us. This was really fun and, and uh, really deep too. <laughs> My pleasure. My yeah. pleasure. My Stretching pleasure. Like you're exercising your brain parts. <laughs> it is. It is because you're, you're, you know, you're, you, we've been raised to think a certain way and We've been raised to think that that's the only way to think. And we kind of see other people who think differently and admit it, we do. Okay, we all do it. I do it too. We, uh, we see other people as who don't think that way as if you are only as enlightened as I, even if it's subconscious. We as Americans, we look at other cultures, we look at other democracies and they say, and we, there's a part of us that says, well, good try. Good try. You're almost there. And maybe you'll have it as good as Americans. You're almost there. Good try. But we have to understand that in order to see his revelation, right? He reveals himself very directly. But that might require something of us. That might require that to see him most clearly, we might have to enter into the minds and the spirits of who he directly revealed it to on these pages. And doing that, thinking Hebraically, you already got your foot in the door, babies. <laughs>